Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Last February, something happened that would dramatically reshape our geopolitics. For those of you watching, Vladimir Putin has just declared to the Russian people that a special military operation is now underway. He urged uh, members of the Ukrainian forces to lay down their arms. He told other countries not to interfere. This Russian military operation that U.S. authorities in the West had warned was coming is now, in fact, underway. Since the invasion, the story of who's winning and who's losing has ping-ponged back and forth. All the while, thousands have been killed and nearly 14 million Ukrainians have been displaced. The United States responded quickly. Economic sanctions were put in place, Russian oil imports were banned, and the effects were felt all over the world. Well, the conflict in Ukraine and the sanctions on Russia have led to another surge in the cost of oil and gas. The United Nations has warned the war in Ukraine could cause global food shortages for tens of millions of people. And meanwhile, here in the US, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, it just continues to weigh on American wallets. But a few months into the war, and to much of the world's surprise, Ukraine held strong and Russia faltered. Nearly three months into this war, Vladimir Putin's plans to overtake Ukraine have stalled and his plans to halt NATO expansion have backfired. And last fall, the world held its breath as the threat of nuclear action loomed, raising the stakes in an already deadly conflict. New reporting this morning, CNN has learned that the U.S. is developing contingency plans for possible Russian escalation in its war in Ukraine, including the potential use of tactical nuclear weapons. I'm John Glenn Hill, and today on The Weeds, the war in Ukraine a year later. I'm joined by Jen Kirby and Jonathan Geyer. Jen is a senior foreign and national security reporter here at Vox, and Jonathan covers foreign policy, national security, and global affairs here. Jen recently wrote a piece called One Year In, Both Ukraine and Russia Still Think They Can Win. I wanted to know how Ukraine, which many thought would fall within days of the invasion, has managed not only to hang on, but even at times, dominate. I mean, I guess Ukraine would say it's not surprising. We shouldn't have underestimated them to begin with and given them weapons before. But I think there's just kind of a confluence of factors. And I also think in some respects, even a year out, it's hard to fully assess exactly what happened and exactly what went right for Ukraine or what went wrong for Russia, because we're still, in some ways, the early days of the conflict. But I think 
a few things kind of contributed in retrospect, those kind of confounding decisions by the Russian military. You know, you'll talk to any Russian military expert and like the sort of game plan that Russia had on paper, like they just didn't execute it. They weren't sending in sort of their most well-trained soldiers. They were having all of these logistical problems. They didn't dominate the skies, which they could really have done. I think there's some speculation that Putin was a little bit high on his own propaganda supply and thought, as if you might remember from the launch of the war, just to sort of remind folks, the justification for the, quote, special military operation was to demilitarize and denazify Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Putin had sort of sold this war as a liberation effort to stop the Ukrainian government from persecuting Russian-speaking populations in Ukraine. And so maybe there was a sense that he believed that, you know, he would come in and people would be welcoming Russian troops. And so they didn't go in as if they would be facing a resilient enemy There's the mobilization of the Ukrainian people and the armed forces there and just sort of the creativity there. Um, You have to give a lot of credit, like every sector of society mobilized for this war, whether they were on the front lines or not. And that made a huge difference. Um, Ukraine won the propaganda war. Obviously, we remember Zelensky in those early days of the war and his, you know, fatigues and going out to the front lines and making these pleas and quoting Churchill and everyone else to Western leaders. And then you have to credit the West. The sanctions that they put on Russia, they sort of, there was a lot of questions about Western unity and whether we would all kind of be united. And they did that. I mean, there's certainly a question of whether the sanctions are working, but in terms of supplying Ukraine and giving them more and more advanced weapons, there's no doubt that some of the things that we've been able to give them and the military support and security assistance, but also economic aid has certainly helped. And we've, you know, we've seen even more articles. Last week, there was, you know, a reporting story about how the U.S. is helping Ukraine find targets. So it's like we've obviously been giving them a big push. So I think all of those factors contribute to where we are today. What that will mean five years, 10 years out, that's a bit harder to say. But we are where we are, where the the lines are drawn for now. Yeah, Jen, I'm I'm really glad you brought up sort of Ukraine's PR when it comes to this, to the war. I remember someone made this really interesting point about, you know, everything we see Zelensky saying, if he's speaking in English, Ukrainians are not his target audience. Like, he is talking to people who live in English-speaking countries, people who live in the United States, in the UK. And this really has become such a global war at the same time. Jonathan, what are the global implications for this conflict? So the fighting's been in Ukraine, but the effects really have been felt everywhere. Where have we seen the most impact outside of Ukraine and Russia? Jen has really expertly summarized the state of the conflict a year in, but there's all these countries that are affected by the war through inflation, through energy and oil prices, through the global supply chain. And all these countries, particularly in the global south, developing countries, that haven't wanted to take a side. Now, one of the defining characteristics of the war, I think, has been this really robust sanctions regime against Russia and the West and and NATO countries and European countries with some Asian partners, super united. I mean, really unprecedented sanctions. But you have a lot of countries like South Africa, like India, even Israel, United Arab Emirates, really important countries that often partner with the U.S., that have been really hesitant to take a side. Mm -hmm. And I think that's been a really important narrative we haven't totally grappled with in terms of one of the ways that the Biden administration has framed this war, 
from the get-go, from the State of the Union in 2022, was this is a battle between democracy and autocracy. In the battle between democracy and autocracies, democracies are rising to the moment, and the world is clearly choosing the side of peace and security. But that's a tougher narrative to sell across the world when there's inflation and, and really rising oil prices. So it's been pretty hard to get countries in the global South on board to the U.S. effort. And one thing I would add is there have been knock-on effects in Europe. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't call them direct effects, but we have seen governments like you could even make the case that the British government, the Italian government, there have been elections that have had second, third, fourth-order effects of this energy crisis, economic crises. And, and Jen has done some really remarkable reporting in Europe about shortages of firewood. And it's felt much more viscerally in Europe, I would say, this energy crisis than here, where in the United States, gas prices went high and then they went a bit lower. Obviously, the proximity to the war, I think, is also a huge quotient of this. And, you know, Americans sort of have the luxury of being one step away from this conflict. But Mm. we're very much a party to it as Americans, particularly, I would say, through something I've been reporting a lot on, which is the weapons transfers, the security assistance that the U.S. has given to Ukraine, which is just above and beyond what uh, the United States has given in recent memory to any country. Where does the war's impact on oil and natural gas sit now? Is that still a factor in the prices we're seeing here in America? Or is it just mainly focused in Europe now? Have we sort of move past that impact on our end? I mean, oil is is this super complicated thing that I'm not a kind of petrochemical expert. But of course, <laughs> this was part of the impetus for why President Biden had this huge about face and went to Saudi Arabia and tried to kind of make good with the Saudi prince, MBS, who's been accused of reportedly ordering the killing of a American resident, a journalist, Jamal Khashoggi. So the oil calculation is just so central to American politics that you have someone like President Biden, who on the one hand is saying, we're fighting a war for democracy in Europe. As he just said in the State of the Union, this is, you know, the greatest test of our time. And then he's willing to make some difficult compromises with unsavory allies like Saudi Arabia, trying to do anything he can to get the OPEC grouping to create more oil production and thus lower prices. But it, it's really a give or take. And, and these things take quite a long time to be felt. The, the politics, as Jonathan mentioned, are really, really fraught. But in terms of, like, the landscape, you know, one of the big exports for Russia, the ways that they make money and fund their war machine is petrochemicals. Um, mm-hmm. And so how we were going to treat that as a Western alliance was always a fundamental factor on the eve of the invasion. And the big calculus was— We want to punish Russia, but how do we do this without totally punishing ourselves? This was a huge thing of like, we are dependent on this and we're coming to this point of like, if we sanction this stuff, we are going to hurt economically. And in many ways, the sanctions went above and beyond what many people predicted and ultimately went to the, the gas and oil phase with the European Union finally sanctioning oil that went into effect late last year. And, you know, some of it was by design, you know, Russia actually cut off the gas, but 
in Europe, there was kind of this scramble to kind of prepare. And it was a full-scale public effort to sort of cut back on the use of gas and, and electricity and power. Um, that was such very present. I was in Germany this summer and sort of everyone was very conscious about, you know, making sure the lights were off and the temperature of the pools were down, you know, if you went to like a public pool. But essentially... Europe has been able to weather that crisis. And that was a big test. Well, if energy prices and inflation go up, will the alliance fall apart? And that hasn't happened. But, you know, what the West has been trying to do is sort of be very creative. So right now, um, one of the things that they implemented was the $60 price cap on Russian oil. And the goal there was, look, we don't want to remove Russian oil from the global market because then prices will spike. And that will affect America. That will affect Europe. But it'll also affect the global south and these other places that have to pay a lot more for fuel. So the goal there was, okay, we'll set this price cap of Russian oil so that if you're going to transport Russian oil, you can't pay more than $60. But then it's kind of like a wink-wink to India and Turkey and these Mm -hmm. other places that are buying Russian oil and saying, look, like we're not going to punish you for buying it. We kind of want you to buy it. But the hope is that you're not going to pay more than this price cap. And so that's the balancing act that's been happening since last year. So far, we've talked a lot about the things that have been impacted by this war, but there really is a human toll. There are people involved, and a lot of people have died. What have the casualties been like on both sides? I I think this is one of the, the big open questions, especially on the Ukrainian side. Those numbers have been really guarded. And I think for obvious reasons, if you're sort of the underdog in this conflict, and it's sort of a national security consideration to keep some of those things quite confidential. But it does mean that this real tragic human toll isn't totally known. Is that right, Mm. Chen? We've seen some estimates, right? I think Russia, the latest, was somewhere around like 180,000 deaths, which is a, a huge amount for a modern conflict. But as Jonathan was saying, the information is definitely guarded by both Russia and Ukraine. But both sides have an incentive to deflate those numbers and inflate the numbers of their enemy. You know, nobody wants to admit, even in an authoritarian country like Russia, you know, Putin doesn't want to be bringing home soldiers in body bags. So there's an incentive there to fudge the numbers. Of course, the civilian side is different. I think the UN has kind of confirmed around a little over 7,000 civilian deaths, but Mm. they believe the toll is much higher, potentially tens of thousands. Um, And it's just hard to know, you know, when you have a a bombing in a neighborhood and you go to check on your neighbor and they're not there, did, did they die? Did they flee? Are they staying with a friend or a relative? It's hard to just keep track of those things. And in areas that are controlled by Russia, we do not know the scale. We we don't have any clarity into the humanitarian situation and the and other things in there. So it's just really, really hard to fully know the true scope of casualties, life lost in like the heat of the moment. And I think we won't really fully know until for a long time. Jonathan, do we know how popular this war is in Ukraine and in Russia? We can start with Russia, but Does this have the support of, you know, the citizens of these countries? One of the obvious challenges of of getting a complete picture of public opinion in Russia is this is an autocratic state. And a lot of the press outlets that we might have depended on to understand where people's heads are at have been closed down. I have seen kind of videos of man-on-the-street interviews where you do hear some criticism of Vladimir Putin and the invasion, but you also hear support. I think— 
as far as I can tell, the way that Russian media and the Russian government has framed this conflict is not the way that we see it in the United States. It's mm. a special operation. It's dealing with fringe forces. It's it's not as kind of cataclysmic and generational and the kind of forever war that we're kind of watching unfold. And as a result, it seems like there's more support for it. And I think mm. maybe the flip side is on the Ukrainian side, I think there's an incredible solidarity and mobilization on behalf of the Ukrainian effort to defend itself. And what I experienced in Washington, D.C. is just anyone of any stripe who's Ukrainian is sort of working on the the effort to bolster its defense, to get the kind of financial and military assistance needed. Every NGO worker who is of Ukrainian persuasion is suddenly working essentially as an advocate. I'm sure there are some people who have qualms about it, let's say in in Russian-held areas, and, and it is a complex country with competing nationalisms, but I do think it's it's become a very stark conflict of Ukraine versus Russia and uh, pretty staunch support on the Ukrainian side for Zelensky and for the defense of national borders and sovereignty. Millions of displaced Ukrainians have fled in the wake of the war, and I'm just, I'm wondering, do we know what's going on with the Ukrainian refugees right now? One of the most uh, powerful things I heard, I, I believe it was a This American Life episode, and it was about the huge contrast between immigrants, migrants, uh, refugee seekers from Central America and South America, you know, the difficulty that they experience trying to come into the United States versus the kind of door swinging open for Ukrainians. And I do think it's great. I think Ukrainians should be very welcome, those seeking, you know, safety. And and obviously, America is a country of immigrants. I think it's a great thing. But a lot of people have drawn out this contrast, which is where was this kind of welcome mat for Afghan refugees, for Syrians, for any number of the oppressive governments, civil wars, and conflicts that have caused really, you know, disturbing effects on on people all over the world. And I, I do think there has been an exceptional response and a, and, a, and a great welcoming of Ukrainians. And it kind of turns the question back on us, which is, can we do that for other conflicts? And I think, like, to be clear, I mean, the U.S. has certainly not taken in as many, not even anywhere close to as many Ukrainian refugees as the neighboring countries that border Ukraine. But we should be clear that incredible amount of people have been displaced. It's about 6 million within Ukraine and about 8 million in Europe. Um, and that includes some in Russia. But Ukraine is a population of about 40 million. So what Jonathan was saying is true. We've definitely seen, particularly in Europe, which I think for many reasons, the way that Ukrainian refugees were were welcomed or, or treated on, on, and legally. I mean, Ukrainian refugees, if they register in Europe, they have full access to, I mean, it, it differs depending which EU country you're in, but they have you know access to job markets and housing in the way that if you are an asylum seeker coming from the Middle East or North Africa, you have to go through a separate process. And it's a temporary and emergency situation that was passed because of the conflict. And it is extraordinary, but it does beg the question of kind of how we're treating people who are also fleeing war from other parts of the world. But I think like this is a big question going forward. You know, Europe, 
has taken in about 5 million Ukrainians have registered under this program. It is different in the sense of geography. You know, I think Europe really sees this as an attack on Europe. And so there is kind of a solidarity there and sort of a sense that this is an emergency and they have to respond. But, you know, in the longer term, you've seen some comments from European politicians kind of being a little bit more skeptical of letting Ukrainians in. There's also more fluidity there. You know, Ukrainians can come to Europe without a visa. So, you know, many people might have come, stayed with family or friends, maybe gone back when the war wasn't so bad. And so there's a lot of sort of differences in this Mm. moment of displacement than we've seen in other crises. But the reality is there are homes destroyed, communities destroyed. And so the question is, there is sort of a sense of temporariness, of temporary displacement right now. And the real question will be moving forward is how many of this will become permanent and what will that look like for Europe and the rest of the world? Up next, we'll zoom in on the United States response and why America is even responding in the first place. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. This is The Weeds. I'm Jonathan Hill, and we're back with Jen Kirby and Jonathan Geyer. They both cover foreign affairs for Vox. So we've discussed the impact on Russia and Ukraine, but 
Can we zoom in now on the United States and its policy? What's been the response so far? What has our involvement looked like? I mean, more than $18 billion of weapons. It is so many weapons that the U.S. defense industrial base, you know, the factories and all of the manufacturing that creates the ammunition and the rockets and the defense systems are so stretched thin that it's causing a kind of crisis within the way the U.S. makes weapons. So Mm -hmm. I'm just totally fascinated by this because one of the defining characteristics of the war has been this incredible, unprecedented U.S. support, really rapid support, the Biden administration's mustering of allies. But, you know, a year in, there are real questions of, are there cracks in that coalition? Is this new Republican-run House of Representatives going to push back? Are they going to use this as kind of a political football to try to lower U.S. spending generally? And this whole range of questions about how involved is the U.S. going to be. And the truth is, the U.S. is immensely involved. And and one of my kind of pet questions that I've been asking is, has President Biden really made the case to the American people that this is going to be a long-haul conflict in Europe with the U.S. standing by Ukraine? And I feel like there have been glimmers of it, but if you listen to the State of the Union recently— there was a very short section on Ukraine. And often, if you were to ask a a Biden administration official, they would kind of defer to the Ukrainians. They would say, we're following the Ukrainians' lead. Or even Zelensky himself, you know, just before Christmas, came to Congress, gave this landmark speech in English, essentially making the best possible case of why the U.S. needs to support Ukraine. And there's some very compelling arguments in it. But I don't think that this Biden administration has totally explained to the American people what it means to give this many weapons, this much tens of billions of dollars of financial assistance, and all of these complex knock-on effects on the economy, on energy, on food security, on geopolitics worldwide. So it's sort of an open question where you do get disinformation, misinformation, you get kind of very fringe Republican voices filling in, in my opinion. It feels like such an elementary question to be asking. But what exactly is the United States' dog in this fight? Like, what is it about this where it's like, yeah, we got to back Ukraine. We need to do this. Like, I understand we are a global superpower. And when you are a global superpower, you throw your weight around to show people that you're about that life. But what what is it about this conflict in particular that the U.S. policy seems to be to get so involved? I love this question, JQ. I think this <laughs> is the kind of question everyone in, in D.C. and elsewhere ought to be asking because there's so many assumptions built into U.S. foreign policy. And the Cold War has been over for you know, over 30 years, there's a whole new set of issues. We had the whole war on terror generation that shaped how we saw the world, how I saw the world growing up. And now we've entered this new period. And I think we have to ask these kind of very elemental questions. So yes, we're in now what people call an era of great power competition. So we've gone from terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda being the U.S.'s main threat to countries like Russia and particularly China. And everyone in the foreign policy establishment in Washington sees China as the big threat. But 
I would say to kind of summarize their perspective is to let Russia get away with invading a country in Europe and having these gross human rights violations, violations of a national sovereignty of a country like Ukraine, sort of sends this message that it's okay to do this, that the U.S. no longer has deterrence, that the U.S., as you say, is no longer a superpower. So that's one part of the equation. Another is the whole question of NATO, this product of the Cold War, this defense coalition of of countries in Europe as well as Canada. And these are all countries that border Ukraine. So if you have Russia invading a country and all these NATO members, it, it ends up kind of being a huge threat to them. So to let Ukraine fall would be just a massive strategic loss, I would say. But as I sort of say up top, these are the questions to ask because one of the problems, I think, with how the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq went is a lot of these questions just weren't asked and we kind of tumbled into these so-called endless wars and we're trapped in cycles of sending more troops and sending more troops without really asking, you know, what were we doing in these places in the first place? Being in Iraq and being in Afghanistan, that shaped so much foreign policy for most of my life. Like, it is very difficult to remember a time where we were not constantly fighting. And I wonder what it looks like going forward. Like, Republicans control the House right now, and historically, they are the more hawkish party, but they aren't really clamoring to spend more money now, and that was not the case, you know, in the Bush era. What are we going to see going forward coming from the U.S.? There has definitely been some Republican rumblings in Congress, but I think on the whole, there's pretty strong bipartisan support for Ukraine for all of the reasons that Jonathan laid out. It's actually helpful to take a little bit of a step back and sort of like think about what the U.S. is doing or how the evolution of this sort of support has happened. You know, there was this eve of the Russian invasion and we were giving weapons support to Ukraine, like these javelins, which are these things you can like mount on your shoulders. And as the war has gone on, as Ukraine has kind of defied expectations, both the United States and Europe have kind of continued to give more robust and advanced weaponry. You know, one of the things that's been really influential has been these HIMARS, which are high-mobility artillery vehicles. And so, like, as Ukraine has kind of punched above its weight, the West has kind of, okay, we're going to give you more and more. And they've kind of just gone in deeper and deeper. And I think one of the questions now is, like, could we just pull the plug? I mean, I don't think we can at this point. We're, we are kind of in pretty deep. But I think those questions will start to be asked as the war continues on. Also, we talk about weapon support, but Ukraine's economy is pretty much dependent on aid from the West as well because of mm. when you're at war, it's pretty hard to just, you know, do business as usual. And so all of those things, Ukraine is sort of reliant on the West. And so the question, I think, is, is going to actually depend quite a bit on the battlefield and what we see in kind of the coming months. I think if you start to see Russia make really significant gains, you might have a rethink about some of our commitments here in the West. If Ukraine starts pushing forward, they may get some fighter jets. I think one thing that's been clear is like everything that seems to be off the table has never actually been off the table except for potentially actually committing, you know, NATO forces. I think that's fully off the table in the way that it stands now, but in terms of like weaponry and support. And I think as long as the coalition remains united, which it does, but there are going to be limitations, right? Like one of the things that everybody did when this war started is they basically went to like the equivalent of their garage and was like, 
at Europe was like pawning through their old stuff and being like, what old Soviet equipment can we like go throw at Ukraine? Yeah. And now we're giving them, you know, advanced tanks. There's going to be a limit in how much weapons we can actually physically give because, as Jonathan was saying, we have to, like, replace it. And there's a point where we can't give too much without compromising what we would consider, like, our own readiness. So there's actually physical limitations, and then there is sort of the patience limitations. Like, a lot of folks that I talk to, like, remind us that a, a year at war is actually not that much time, which is mm. scary and sad because the human toll is irreversible. Yeah. But I think— we have to sort of look a little bit on the battlefield to figure out what comes next. And that is going to determine the politics in Washington, in Brussels, in Berlin. Whether those expectations are realistic, I don't know. But that, I think, is kind of what I'm looking for in terms of political support. Jonathan, what would our allies say if we backed off on our aid for Ukraine? What implications would that have for Ukraine and also for U.S. foreign policy? Part of this has to do with, it's an argument that's being made among some quarters in Washington about Europe needing to stand up for its own security and that the U.S. can't always be the kind of guarantor of there being enough tanks and weapons and fighter jets and such. And at some point, Germany, which historically has had a pretty small military budget for all sorts of historical reasons you know, one could get into, needs to step up as well as France and others. But these are very long processes. And I think by virtue of the tens of billions of dollars the U.S. has already put into this conflict, it's sort of an investment, a sense that they're going to be there for the long haul. And I think it would send a message among the American leadership that they're not prepared for these kind of long-term engagements. But the fact of the matter is, Everyone in Washington is more focused on China right now than Russia. Mm. And the the question of staying involved in Russia has become a kind of proxy for how the U.S. might think about China. And it's a little bit of a shadow puppets game. And I don't think anyone is really having the actual conversation. I mean, geopolitics is so about euphemisms. And there's if you listen to Pentagon officials, they'll talk about Russia as the acute threat and China as the pacing threat. And this is such baloney language. I wish Biden's national security leaders would kind of say outright, this is what we're doing in Russia. This is what we're worried about in China. But there's so much jargon that it's very hard to have this straight-up conversation, JQ, that you're opposing, which is like, are we committed to this? Why? And then what next? Is there a reason that we dance around this stuff all cute? Like, I was listening to... Um, what my so I'm a nerd. So what I do after work, I'll go on a long walk and I'll listen to Today Explained. And on the recent episode they did about the Chinese balloon, it was like this idea of like, yeah, we're talking ab about a balloon and we're not talking about the fact that China and the U.S. actively spy on each other constantly. Why can't we just say the thing? What is it? Why can't? Why is there a reason? <laughs> And maybe this is existential and not how diplomacy works, but it's sort of this question of like, all right, let's talk about the thing instead of dancing around this. One sort of strange reality of the U.S. is that foreign policy stuff is a really elite establishment game, and not enough Americans are that cued in to like, what is American foreign policy? What are the wars? What are the bases? Why are we in 
all these different countries, Syria, Somalia, Iraq. I mean, these are kind of brushed under the rug. And the same might be said for how we think about Ukraine in that this is not a big open conversation. This is not the conversation people have, our Congress people are having back in their districts. And so it does become this kind of thing where no one's directly talking about it. And then I would say a slightly off-kilter answer to your question, JQ, is that arms makers, the big defense contractors, mm. they don't want to directly say that, you know, it's very profitable to have war with China. It's very profitable to be involved in Ukraine. So they'll dance around it and they'll use lots of jargon. And then somehow that jargon ends up seeping into some of the, you know, congressional leadership, into the defense community, into the foreign policy leadership in the State Department. So there is a kind of great amount of lingo and not enough, in my opinion, just direct conversations and reaching Americans where they're at. I don't know if this is like actually an answer to your question, but it just sort of came to me as Jonathan was speaking. When I mean, you mentioned sort of engagements and our in Afghanistan and Iraq. And I think there is something about the Ukraine war that feels kind of black and white in a way that's really reassuring in a very messy and and difficult world. Mm. Russia is the clear aggressor. And I know Russia for is sort of has already had kind of a villainous role or, or sort of perspective in from US foreign policy, but you have these Ukrainian people who are mobilizing to defeat this aggressor. And as we were talking earlier about sort of Zelensky's framing of kind of democracy versus authoritarianism, freedom versus, and there's, there is like, even as an American, there's something really compelling in being like on the good side and like with the good guys. And I think with some of the U.S.'s engagements, maybe the later years of Afghanistan, Iraq, it's much more complex. There's a much more gray area. And so I think there is sort of this, you know, in the aftermath of the Trump administration and the question of the U.S.'s role in the world. And here we are reasserting our alliances in Europe. And there's kind of this feel-good story to it that even for Americans who may not follow the war in Ukraine so much, like, there is sort of an appeal to it. I mean, Zelensky, of course, has capitalized on that narrative, and that's part of the reason why he's gotten so much support. And I, I don't know how long that will last because right now we haven't really had to sacrifice to sort of give in to that good feeling. And that may be like tougher and tougher as this conflict drags on. But I think that's sort of part of the the reason why the Ukraine war has kind of had the support it's had even in Washington and, and Europe and et cetera. Next, we'll try to figure out where the war goes from here. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. 
That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. We're back talking about the war between Russia and Ukraine with Jonathan Geyer and Jen Kirby. So, Jen, I'm curious about how our other allies are doing in this war. Last week, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky was in the United Kingdom, and he visited the prime minister along with King Charles. How is the rest of the world and Ukraine's allies reacting to all of this? Obviously, Zelensky went to Washington first, and now he's doing his tour of Europe. UK has been a strong partner of Ukraine, and then he also was in Brussels, uh, which is the headquarters for the European Union. And so I think what Zelensky is trying to do is really kind of like fire everybody up in advance of what may be a potentially pretty difficult next few months. You know, he got the weapons that he wanted. The Ukrainians had been asking for tanks and yelling at the Germans for a very long time about the tanks. And finally, with the U.S.'s decision to give uh, those M1 um, Abrams tanks, which will not arrive to the front lines anytime soon, will not Mm. make a difference in the next few months. But the hope was if we did that, then we'd give Europe cover to give them their tanks, which might get there a little bit faster. So I think Zelensky, and this is sort of a little bit of guessing on my part, but the Ukrainians have been warning you know, that Russia is preparing to launch an offensive. It could start soon. It could be kind of the biggest move since the start of the war. Obviously, hard to say, but I think there's a sense of, like, the next phase of the war is coming soon, and Zelensky really wants to, like, lock down that support within Europe and within, you know, the partners that have been supporting Ukraine to sort of make sure everyone's still on side for kind of the next phase. And that's sort of how I interpret this, and he is doing the job he needs to do. He needs to sort of say thank you, but we, this fight is not over, and you've, you, if we want to, like, see it through, if we want to continue— we, we still need you on side. And that is is very much what his visit is about. Is it, Okay, we've talked about how kind of surprising I think it was to everyone that Russia didn't just get in there and dominate. Uh, like, it seems like they so easily could have. I'm curious about two things. One, why is that? Like, what was the thought process? Was it just them getting a little too cocky and thinking, oh, this will be easy peasy, lemon squeezy? And then... How much of a role has the West's involvement played in keeping this an even playing field? It's very obvious that Ukrainians are united, they're scrappy, they're they're in there, they're really they're doing what they have to do, but how much of the West support is kind of bolstering them in this? Maybe to to frame it in questions back to you. I guess I've been thinking about what are the questions that are going to define where things go from here. And I think 
One of them, which we've already talked about quite a bit, but I don't think can be underemphasized, is war fatigue in the United States and war fatigue in Europe. Mm. And, you know, maintaining these coalitions, it's like constant gardening. It's not something that you can, like, let go of. You know, this whole NATO apparatus was in terrible shape under the Trump years. And, you know, now it's rushing along. But you can't just keep up these relationships without having diplomats from the United States constantly shuttling, constantly maintaining these connections with European partners, Asian partners, and and all these other countries that are affected sideways through this war. So part of that is maintaining relationships with allies. Part of it is making sure Americans understand the stakes. Because at the end of the day, if, if Republicans in the House, you know, start making a stink about ongoing aid to Ukraine, it's going to put a major wrench in this complex architecture of aid. The second question that sort of is out of our control, but is is foremost, I would say, on everyone's mind, especially Ukrainians, is what is Vladimir Putin willing to do? What kind of Mm. outlandish risks? And we've seen these really heinous attacks on civilians and kind of indiscriminate rocket attacks. And we've seen a brutal offensive. And it's like sort of what next? And there there was a moment last fall where we were all really freaked out about the potential of tactical nuclear weapons being used by Russia. And there's all sorts of incredibly risky things that Vladimir Putin could do that would then up the risks, perhaps, that the U.S. and others would be willing to respond. But to me, perhaps the most fundamental question is, what does winning look like? What does winning look like for Ukraine? And what kind of outcome would be acceptable to Ukrainians? Because there was also this 2014 Russian invasion of Ukraine where they lost Crimea in the south. And now there's all sorts of questions of whether Ukraine winning would involve getting Crimea back in addition Mm. to gaining autonomy and sovereignty over the other parts that Russia invaded last year. And, you know, no one wants to say outright among European or American leadership what are the compromises that are going to be made, because obviously those compromises will happen sometime in the future. But these are big outstanding questions of of what would a win look like and what would safety and security look like for Ukrainians. Jen, this whole thing sort of seems like, it, it feels like a return to a different kind of warfare, It is real combat. You know, it's not necessarily cyber warfare or just drones. What does this conflict tell us about the way wars are fought now? Is this an outlier or are we returning back to something? What's going on? I think we're still trying to figure this out. And this is a a question that I've been grappling with. I think And I'm still sort of reporting this out, but I think there's sort of two elements. There's sort of a high-tech element and a low-tech element, and it's sort of this kind of weird hybrid. It's just sort of like this trench warfare, bullets being fired back and forth. I've heard, you know, some experts say, like, we might need to look at sort of NATO's ground forces because, like, what if we did get in a war with Russia? Would We assume maybe it would be from the air, but maybe it, it wouldn't necessarily be. And I'm not saying that was necessarily what NATO's game plan is, but we're sort of looking at this and saying 
this looks more like something of the past century than we've seen even in, you know, our engagements in in the Middle East and places like Afghanistan and Syria in some degrees. And so we've, we've also seen Ukraine be able to be really creative and really use this with the help of Western intelligence and Western backing, be able to use these kinds of weapons that are in our arsenal, but we haven't really seen sort of deployed as much and really use them super effectively in a way that's also created a really bloody and tremendous battle. Russia, we haven't seen them use maybe some of their more advanced weaponry and some of the higher end things in their arsenal, but they've also been using like a lot of artillery and, and things like that. But at the same time, we do see sort of the use of drones, right? We have these Turkish drones, which have kind of Con like folk status in Ukraine for their ability to sort of get Russian targets. And one thing that's been kind of undercovered, which I started to kind of dig into lately, is the actual very active cyber war that we've been having. Mm. Ukrainian defenses have actually been surprisingly well with Western support and also like Western tech company support. But that's also been low-key happening since the start of war. So and we're also seeing like the information disinformation space and sort of how both sides have kind of either done well or or sometimes messed up a little bit on that area as well. So you're seeing sort of this very modern elements, the cyber warfare, these drones, these new things. But you're also seeing trench warfare, which is much more sort of the 20th century than today. So you have this combination that's creating a maybe changing how we think about war, maybe changing how we prepare for war, maybe changing how we as the United States thinks about arming our other partners. So I think we're we're kind of learning in real time and we're seeing how this works. But I think there's been a very kind of low-tech element to this and also a high-tech element that's kind of created this, I guess, the war of, of 2022, 2023. Americans historically are not always plugged into war, especially when it's not impacting our day-to-day lives. Like, there was a huge difference, especially as the years went on, between how we thought and talked about Afghanistan. And I just think historically, World War II and its war bonds and the war effort. I know that I have noticed fewer and fewer headlines and attention given to this war, especially since gas prices in the U.S. have come down. Is that just how it is Is there any inkling that that attitude can or will change, particularly when it comes to this war? I think this goes to what has the United States learned from the war on terrorism and and Mm. the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, where those conflicts grinded on for about two decades, and they were always in the margins. And with the exception of when veterans would come home or, or when American service people would tragically die, there was not really a huge serious engagement with the fact that the U.S. was kind of participating in long-term interventions. So I would say, even though the U.S., it's very different in this case, the U.S. is not as directly involved, even if the U.S. is providing targeting coordinates and and tons of weapons. They're not a direct party to this Ukraine-Russia war. But there is a lesson to be learned about bringing in the American people, explaining it to them, the stakes, and, and why the Biden administration has prioritized this conflict, and being very clear-eyed about some of the parallels, which is that it might be bizarre to say this, but a kind of long war in Ukraine and Russia, that might be the best possible outcome to this conflict. I think the worst possible outcome would be a nuclear war. 
So, mm. you know, this kind of terrible grinding conflict has a real tragic outcome on Ukrainians, on Europeans, and all these secondary and third-order effects. But given the geopolitical circumstances, it may just be a reality at this moment. And something that experts say is that if a war goes on longer than a year, it's a lot likelier to last for a decade. And this is going to be, I think, a long-haul conflict. So right now we're in this cycle of Washington kind of debating a different weapon system every month of what to be sent to Ukraine. And I think a more compelling conversation that would be a better public service would be, what are the strategic goals? What are the best and worst outcomes? Why is the U.S. so involved? Because that's the way that you reach Americans. When you're talking about high Mars defense systems and certain types of ammunitions and weapons, I mean, that is not an accessible conversation even though, you know, all this is coming out of taxpayer dollars at some level. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think two things. I think it goes back to sort of what I said before about this has a a great narrative to it of, of we're on the side of democracy and freedom against the very obvious bad guys. And that gives Americans a way to buy in, but not necessarily have to make sacrifices for this. And I think that's more of a reflection of our domestic political situation than anything that has to do with U.S. foreign policy. Certainly, as Jonathan was saying, with our commitments in, you know, Afghanistan and Iraq, those tragedies and the human toll, both on American service members and those who fought it, but also the populations in Afghanistan and elsewhere in Iraq and Syria and all of whom who felt the the fallout of that, um, has we've been insulated from that uh, pretty pretty substantially. But, you know, we are a divided and polarized country. And so the idea that we'd sort of all get together and just rally, I mean, we've seen with COVID, there doesn't really seem to be much that will, if we couldn't all get together and sort of do the sacrifice for the global pandemic, it seems hard to imagine that we would do that for a country overseas. And and I would say President Biden certainly tried to make the case to a degree, you know, his whole Putin's price hike thing was kind of a way to say like, We've got to sort of take the sacrifice and sort of take a hit because of this threat, which is not just a threat to Ukrainians who are also sort of want to have freedom and democracy, but also this sort of more global threat to the institutions we hold dear. And it's easy to buy into that when it doesn't sort of take a lot. But if, you know, we were to see even more economic pressures, I don't know if that would have the same resonance. So I think it's part of a reflection, too, of our own kind of dysfunctional political system where we see sort of a bipartisan hawkishness against China. But it's not like Republicans were cheering the balloon being shot down. They were angry that the balloon wasn't shot down sooner. It's like Mm. we can't actually sort of— there used to be this sort of saying, it's probably cliche, but like, you know, politics stops at the water's edge when it comes to foreign policy. And I would argue that it's good to have debates that like a collective mindset is not necessarily good. But as a country, we don't have sort of the ability to kind of do the mass sort of sacrifice. And I don't know what it would take, but our own sort of political dysfunction stops us from kind of of having that investment. Jen Kirby, Jonathan Geyer, thank you all so much for joining us on The Weeds today. Thank you. Thanks. That's all for us today. Thank you to Jen Kirby and Jonathan Geyer for joining me. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. 
Patrick Boyd engineered this episode with help from Christian Ayala. Caitlin Pinsey-Moog fact-checked it for us. Our editorial director is A.M. Hall. And I'm your host, John Quillen Hill. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.